Recently, um, a very famous pastor, I don't, I don't know that it's necessary that I name him, um, in what really could only be described as deep and lamentable ignorance, he spoke of the sad state of affairs in our churches today, and, and, and this is what he said, and I, and I think that this is, really is a deep and lamentable ignorance. Um, he said this, specifically speaking about the Lord's Supper. He said, again, I'm not making any grand statements. I'm just saying some of this stuff I didn't know. I didn't know for that for the first 1,500 years of church history, everyone saw it as the literal body and blood of Christ. And it wasn't until 500 years ago that someone popularized the thought that it's just a symbol and nothing more. I didn't know that. And I thought, wow, well, that's something to consider. That's not true, by the way. And while I didn't, I, he, he goes on and says, well, I won't make a strong statement. I will make a statement about this. He says, it was at that same time that for the first time, someone put a pulpit in front of the gathering. Because before that, it was always the, the body and blood of Christ that was central to their gatherings. For 1,500 years, it was never one guy in his pulpit being the center of the church. It was the body and blood of Christ. And even the leaders just saw themselves as partakers. And he says, oh man, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. I say that because the church is more divided now than at any time in history. What does this book, the Bible, tell us clearly? That he does not want any divisions in the church. And for a thousand years, there was just one church. And you know what? We're so used to growing up in a time when literally there are over 30,000 Christian denominations right now. But for the first thousand years, there was just one. And what was interesting is communion was at the center of the room every time they gathered. And it wasn't a pulpit where a guy preached after studying in his office by himself for 20 hours. See, right now we've got guys like me that go into a room, study, and you know, that's uh, what I was doing for years. And then he says, meanwhile, other guys went into their rooms and studied, and we started all giving different messages and so many contradicting each other. And pretty soon there was, well, I follow Piper, or I follow Chan, or I follow... You know, it's like everyone's following different guys. I'm just saying, I believe, I believe there's something about taking communion out of the center of the church and replacing it with a gifted speaker. Not that that gifted speaker isn't part of the body of Christ and a, and a gift of the body of Christ, but the body itself needs to be back at the center of the church. He believes that communion and the body, the bread and the cup, should be the central focus of our worship. And it's not my place this morning or my intention to scold this pastor, but he's not being honest there. The issue is so much deeper than all of this. Um, really, these are just Roman Catholic talking points. The issue, is, the issue is more complex, and the truth of the matter is that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the sacrifice was not the central point of worship. Yes, it was how we are able to approach God, but the central point of His worship is always His Word. God spoke and His people responded. Either they responded with worshipful actions, so bowing down or bringing offerings and sacrifices, or they responded with worshipful words, singing praises and offering up thanksgivings, or they responded with worshipful obedience. 
The book of Hebrews even opens like this. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Genuine communion with God, which is what we're talking about here. Genuine communion with God begins with his word. Now, don't hear me say that the Lord's Supper is merely a memorial and shouldn't be a focus of our worship. I don't believe that. I believe that here at Logansville Church, we actually, we actually probably should make a bigger deal sometimes about the, the supper and, and partake of it more often. But the command of the New Testament, the command of the Bible, is to proclaim the revealed Word of God to the nations. It, it is to say to God's people, Thus saith the, the Lord. That's why every time we partake of the supper, we also read God's words. We also read God's instructions pertaining to the supper because we are proclaiming his death until he comes. We are responding to God's word. In fact, we're responding to the word made flesh, his, his covenants of promise that have been realized in Jesus Christ. We are responding to God in worshipful actions, worshipful words, and, and, and worshipful obedience. And so every time we assemble as the church, as the assembly of the saints, there's another instruction and privilege that we have been given by God in order to be in communion with God. Paul gives this instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Just listen very carefully to this. He writes, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then... Paul says, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Because of the gospel, we are called to pray. Now we understand that this is not unique to the assembly, right? Private, individual, personal prayers are throughout the scriptures. Even Jesus Christ himself frequently went off by himself to pray. Prayer is a, is a vital aspect of the Christian life. It's vital to our communion with God. The apostles saw prayer as one of their, one of their primary duties, one of their two primary tasks as, as the first under-shepherds of the church. In Acts chapter 6, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That, that was their job. We believe these duties have carried over to all church shepherds, prayer and ministry of the word. But this is also the great privilege of all Christians. And it's one of the promises that, that Christ leaves the eleven with here in the farewell discourse in John chapter 14. Now, I want to point out these promises. I want to read John 14 verses 1 through 15. And as we read this, 
Listen for those, those specific things Jesus says that are promises. Listen for his promises just in these first 15 verses. We're really going to kind of sink the teeth of our minds into verses 13 and 14 this morning, which is really the third promise. So let me read John 14, verses 1 through 15. Listen for the promises. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than he, these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's just stop and pray here. Father, as we consider your promises, the promises of Christ given to the disciples, help us to grow in our faith, trusting these promises. Give us ears to hear this morning, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this chapter started, John 14 started with Jesus' encouragement, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he went on to assure them that he was going to be leaving them in order to prepare a place for them. Well, they didn't see this as assurance, however, and they wondered where in the world he could possibly be going. But the bigger issue here is that, that these questions from Thomas and then Philip, they indicate for us that, that the eleven, they don't understand how it could be that the Father was present in the word and work of the Son. And as Jesus explains these things to them, um, as we've seen over the past several weeks, he calls on them to believe, trust me he says, and believe in me because of the works that I do. And so after calling on them to believe, the discussion moves really beyond the questions that, that surround his departure, including his destination, where he is going. The discussion moves beyond his unity with the Father, although he is going to come back to that again. And it moves to the disciples' mission to do greater works, as he says. Greater things than these will he do, will you do. Uh, those greater works, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, was to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth and thereby lead people into communion with Christ. 
And as Jesus calls on his disciples to believe in him, he makes this, really, he makes a number of incredible promises that are designed to strengthen and uphold the disciples' faith. And also, he reveals to them his plans to provide for their needs in the future after his departure. So the three promises that I want you to see today just from these verses, in fact, there are probably more than three. You could probably pull out a number of promises in here, but I want to point out three. And in reality, we've already looked at the first two, and so we're going to be spending time really on the third promise. And I I should mention here that Throughout this farewell discourse, from John, really the middle of verse uh, chapter 13, where it begins, all the way through the end of chapter 17, chapter 17 is his prayer, all the way through this teaching of Jesus, um, he makes many promises to his disciples that we can cling to, that we should hold fast to. Let me simply point out these three from the first half of John 14. The first thing he promised here is he promised to prepare heaven and return to take his disciples to be there with him. This really is a restatement of the same promises that that God has been making all throughout the scriptures. So picture this, if you would. Genesis chapter 17 He says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then he gives us a little bit more. In in Exodus chapter 6, he says to Moses, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then he expands on that even more in in places like Ezekiel and Jeremiah. There's a whole bunch of other places too. but, But Ezekiel 36 says, You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. In Jeremiah chapter 31, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, you might ask, what does this have to do with heaven? What does this have to do with his promise to go and prepare a place that where I am, you may be also? Everything. Revelation 21 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That where I am, you may be also, Jesus promised. This is an incredible promise that's all throughout the scriptures. And Jesus is just reiterating it here. That where I am, you may be also. The second promise that we can see here really is verse 12. Um, It's a promise that believers could carry, uh, that, that they would carry on in Christ's work. So look at verse 12 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So contrary to what some believe, Jesus' primary work was not healing people. It was not mercy ministry. It was preaching the gospel. Mark chapter 1 says this, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out, Jesus said. Do you know why they were looking for him? Simon said, everyone is looking for you. They were looking for him because he'd been healing people. He'd been performing signs and wonders and they wanted more, but he came to preach the good news. This preaching is the, is the greater things that he was talking about. Listen to his commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Colossians 1.28. He says, Him we proclaim warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. We can keep going there. And as we keep working through John 14, Jesus immediately, right after that promise, he immediately promises them an ongoing communion with him after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So look at 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. But you may... You may see uh, with a plain, if you just kind of take a plain reading of the text there, you can see that Jesus is talking about prayer. He's talking specifically about answering prayer. So what do these verses have to do with communion? Or, or, Or let me ask it differently. What do these verses have to do with our union and communion with God, with Christ? What do these verses have to do with us and our ongoing relationship with Jesus? Well, the answer is obviously everything. Because understanding these promises has has everything to do with being a Christian. Now, bear with me here because I want to tie all of this together. What is a Christian? There are a few ways to answer that question, right? A few right ways. First, a Christian is one who has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, right? A Christian is one who has confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So a Christian is one who has confessed, not just with their mouth, but also in their heart, believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. A second way to answer the question is like this. A Christian is one who has been born again, or or born of God. A Christian is one who has been made a child of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A Christian is one who has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and a Christian is one who has been born of God. 
and a third way to answer that question might be like this. A Christian is one who is in a real, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Someone who is in a real, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus' own I am statements throughout John's gospel, they, they emphasize this aspect of our Christian lives, our relationship with him. So he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. That's a relationship. John chapter 15, verse 1. We haven't gotten there yet, but it's okay to read ahead. He's going to say, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And then in verse 4, John 15, 4, he says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. These statements, these definitions of, of what it means to be a Christian, when we put them all together, they portray the Christian life as one that is confessional and covenantal and a relationship with Jesus Christ and therefore with God the Father. Here's how we bring all of this together. If, if the Christian life that Jesus has established with his disciples, if the Christian life is one that is confessional and, and covenantal, if it is a relationship with Jesus Christ himself and therefore with God the Father, what do we do when he leaves? What do they do when he leaves? He's talking about going away. How is it that we can have a personal relationship with someone who is not physically present? How can his disciples remain in communion with him if he's not there? Well, there are two keys to understanding his answer here. So these are the keys. They're not the answer. I'm going to give you the answer then, next. But these are the keys to understanding his answer. The first key is that Jesus Christ is going to ascend to his throne where he will reign in power, seated at the right hand of the Father. That's a key to understanding what he's going to say. The second key is that he's going to ask the Father and he will send another helper, the Holy Spirit. We're going to get at that even in the next few verses. These are the two keys to understanding our communion with Christ, really who he is and what he has done. But the method... The method of our ongoing communion with Jesus Christ and therefore with the Father, the method is prayer. Because of these two keys, we are able to speak to the Lord in prayer. And, and at the same time, we are able to commune with Christ in prayer. So A.W. Pink, who was a kind of a prominent theologian in the early to mid-1900s, he writes of this passage, he says, True, he would be in heaven and they on earth. But prayer could remove all sense of distance. Prayer could bring them into his very presence at any time. And prayer was essential to the greater works he spoke of there in verse 12. Prayer is vital to your being in communion with Christ. Do you understand that? Prayer is vital to the Christian life. So in the same way that having a, a personal relationship with Jesus is essential for salvation. In fact, I would say that, that it really can't exist without it. Prayer is essential to having a personal relationship with Jesus. 
It can't exist without it. Prayer is essential to our discipleship. Prayer is essential to our sanctification, our growing in Christ-likeness. I would even go so far as to say that prayer is essential to our salvation. Martin Luther was a man who was known for his one-liners. He said this, A Christian without prayer is as impossible as a living person without a pulse. That, should con- that convicts me. I don't know about you. But if that's true, that convicts A Christian without prayer is as impossible as a living person without a pulse. Without prayer, there can be no communion with Christ. So I'll put it this way. If you have made some sort of profession of faith, so let's say you ask Jesus into your heart, or you were baptized at a very young age and never attended church, never read your Bible, never prayed, if you never bore fruit in keeping with repentance, then it should be clear that you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, right? It should be pretty clear. Um, Without those things, there is no Christianity. Now, those examples, going to church, reading your Bible, I'm not talking about someone living in a jungle somewhere. That's always the objection uh, when I say that going to church is vital to the Christian life and reading your Bible is vital to the Christian life. People always say, well, what about... I'm not talking about that. With those examples, I'm talking about us here. Without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, my sheep know my voice, there's no Christianity. And what is a personal relationship with Jesus if it's not one that's completely wrapped up in prayer? Also, don't misunderstand, I'm not leaving out the reading of God's Word and meditation upon God's Word. They go hand in hand. God has spoken to us. We respond in prayer one of the ways in which we respond. But prayer is our great privilege in this life. That's why we're called to pray without ceasing, because we are privileged to live in constant communion with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything you do, whatever you do, word or deed, talk or action, whatever you do, we should be giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. So let's talk about this promise of ongoing communion. Because as... As part of this promise, Jesus speaks specifically here about bringing requests to God. In fact, he he simply uses the word ask. But we understand, I I hope you understand, that in using this word that that he's talking about prayer. I'm I'm kind of making that a given, but, but he is talking about prayer. And as part of this promise, he refers to three aspects of these prayers. He talks about their scope their condition, and their goal. So so let's talk about the scope of these prayers, the scope of this promise, really. Look at these verses again, verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Whatever, anything, I will do it, he says. I do think that we need to be reminded sometimes that Jesus is not a genie. Praying for something in Jesus' name 
And I pray in Jesus' name. It's not a, it's not a magical uh, incantation. So these verses do not mean that we'll get anything we ask for if we just get the right prayer formula right or the right ratio of faith and, and declaration, right? This does not mean that God is obliged to submit to our prayers. Far from it. Don't think that way. So, for example, sometimes we will pray foolishly or ignorantly. Don't raise your hand here, but have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed foolishly or ignorantly? And by ignorantly, I just mean without all the necessary information. So, so therefore, because we have prayed that way sometimes, we should be grateful that God's, God's wisdom, for God's kindness, that God in His mercy and in His love toward us cannot be overruled by our own, by our own folly or foolish prayers. We should also remember the truth of Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, which says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. By now we should understand that God's ways prioritize often the spiritual over the material. The spiritual over the stuff, right? We can see this throughout the Psalms. So particularly, I'm thinking of when David repeatedly, over and over and over again, throughout the Psalms, prays for deliverance from his enemies. There are dozens of Psalms in which this is the crux of the prayer. Did God deliver David? Absolutely. David died an old man full of years. But he had to pray the same prayer over and over and over again. And I want to point out that that sometimes David got into some pretty sticky situations and it was his fault. And he still prayed for God to deliver him. And ultimately, God still answered his prayer. I was talking to someone recently who, who didn't want to pray for Christians who were suffering because of lifestyle choices, um, suffering because of their own sin. They said, don't, don't pray for them because essentially they're getting what they deserve. How unloving and ignorant and pharisaical do we have to be? I don't pray for anything based on what I've done. Praise Jesus. I pray for things based on what Christ has done. But back to David... God generally, in answering those prayers throughout the Psalms, you, could, you can open to a Psalm and find any of them, any number of them, where David prays for deliverance from his enemies. God generally didn't strike down David's enemies immediately simply because David prayed for him to. In fact, God often seems quiet and silent. I'm convinced that God didn't answer many of David's prayers immediately precisely because he was using this affliction, David's affliction, to, to sanctify him, to, to bring him to, de, to declare, as he does at the end of Psalm 59, for example. He, he prays that the very final verse is, O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. God is primarily concerned with the spiritual, not with the physical. 
So, so let me illustrate this by pointing out how that psalm begins. Psalm, the first few verses of Psalm 59. It says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. Save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. And how does that prayer end? O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. God sometimes uses physical affliction to bring us into a greater dependence on Him. Maybe it's more than sometimes, right? Maybe God always uses physical affliction to bring us into a greater dependence on Him. To align our wills with His will. First John chapter 5 Verses 14 and 15 says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. John writes, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that when he hears, he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. According to his will. So another example is this, whatever Paul's thorn in the flesh was, God didn't answer Paul's prayer to remove that thorn in the flesh until after the third time, and then the answer was no. Why? To bring Paul's will into submission to the will of God. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That was his answer. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, back in John 14, um, because Jesus here isn't listing all the reasons why he might not grant us what we ask for, uh, instead, he is just simply emphasizing, he says, he will give us whatever we ask of him in prayer. But remember, the context of this, of this passage, of this, of this chapter, of this charge to the apostles, the context of this is about our union, the promise of our union and communion. So in asking, we cannot disassociate our requests from our Savior and from His greater things. This is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't disassociate verse 12 and the promise that He gives there with the requests that we ask of Him. We come to the Father as Christians. We come to the Father as representatives of Christ, praying as He did, Thy will be done. As believers, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what it means to to ask in my name. So if you are truly praying in the name of Jesus Christ, you are praying in the will of Jesus Christ. And He promises, this I will do. For what purpose? That the Father may be glorified in the Son, he says. But this is the, this is the scope of his answer to our requests. So, so listen to how Paul prays. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, Jesus says. John Newton, 
John Newton wrote a lot of hymns. Um, he wrote one that I had never heard before titled, Come, My Soul, Thy Suit Prepare. Listen to this, just this couple of lines from that hymn. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. For thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, no one can ever ask too much. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, no one can ever ask too much. That really captures the scope of our prayers. But notice the condition. The condition here. There is a condition. We are to ask in my name, Jesus says. We've already touched on it a bit. Praying in Jesus' name, is, as I said, is not a magical formula. These aren't magic words. What it really means is that we're coming to, Father, coming to the Father through the mediating work of Jesus Christ. So when you pray this way, when you pray in Jesus' name, you're, you're standing on Jesus' shed blood. You're standing on the work that Jesus has done. When you pray in Jesus' name, you are coming as a child of God, purchased by the blood of Christ. He is our mediator between God and man, and His name is the name that grants us entrance into the Holy of Holies. And to pray in our own name, to pray based on our own righteousness is to pray to, so, so as to expect no answer at all. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. He also told them this parable uh, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 9. Two men went up uh, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Self-righteousness is exhausting and completely ineffective. Leon Morris, in one of his commentaries, he wrote this. He says, this means that prayer is to be in accordance with all that the name stands for. It is prayer proceeding from faith in Christ, prayer that gives expression to oneness in Christ, prayer that seeks to glorify Christ. This means that we should not expect, we shouldn't expect answers to our, to our petty, worldly, self-centered prayers, but we can expect answers to those prayers that, that glorify Him, that are centered on His person and work. And, and this brings us to the goal of our prayers, the goal the goal of our prayers is to bring glory to the Father through the Son. This was the goal of Jesus' prayer. This is how he could view the, the cross as a, as a sacrifice to be embraced and not something to be avoided. Listen to the, the very next time in John's gospel that Jesus prays. John 17, verse 1. His prayer opens like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. James Montgomery Boyce, um, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia years ago, he said, this is a new thought for many people. For we are so filled with the idea that prayer is getting something from God that we rarely consider that prayer is actually a means by which God gets something from us. What he wants from us is glory, a glory that will lead others to trust him. And Jesus' own commitment to glorify his Father, I think we can see that the clearest when, when he was in the garden just a few hours after this. And he prays this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prays that prayer just a few hours after saying these words to his disciples. He gives them this instruction, this promise here in verses 13 and 14. He gives them this knowing that he is headed to the cross in just a matter of hours. To ask in the name of Christ is to set aside our own will and to bow down to the perfect will of God. To just tack in Jesus' name, amen, on the end of a prayer, it's it's meaningless unless we mean it. To pray these things in Jesus' name is to stand on Jesus' shed blood. To stand... As a child of God, purchased by his blood. To believe in his name, to pray in his name, is to walk in Christ's way. And, and you know the way. Because I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Even in prayer. I could finish here by reading all of Romans chapter 8. Let me just read a portion of that. Listen to the prayer here. Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing for the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." 
Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he uh, called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear prayer in that? Did you hear that Jesus Christ is praying? That the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words? Did you hear that we are in communion with God? And that nothing can separate us from that? That is the truth that when he says in John chapter 13 or 14, whatever you ask for in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And nothing can separate us from the communion that we have with the Father and the Son. Nothing. Let's pray. Father, it is daunting to think about these things and to comprehend them and then to pray. And then to come to you and ask ask that you would work in our minds and in our hearts to transform us into Christ-likeness, not to make us better people so that we feel better, but that you would cause us to rely upon you that we may understand what it means to be in communion with you, in communion with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. Father, help us to understand these things that we might give glory and praise to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.